Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times Books podcast. And we're talking today about The Day That Went Missing, the title we've chosen as this month's book club title. And it's a powerful, beautifully written memoir by the writer Richard Beard about a tragic accident that befell his family when he was 11. And I'm really pleased to be in conversation with the author, Richard. Can we start by you just giving us a little bit of an overview of the book? Can you just tell us, for people who haven't read it yet, what, what's it about? Well, the title came to me quite late in the process, the, the day that went missing. But it is about this day in my family's life, which we had erased from our collective memory. And it's the day on which my brother drowned during a holiday in, in Cornwall. So he was nine uh, and I was 11. And it's about the fact that this day is missing, that I have... I had no memory in my early 50s of the actual date that he died. I had no memory of his birthday. Um, I don't know where the beach was. I don't know where it was in Cornwall. There'd been a complete blank around this because we had chosen as a family to blank it out from our, our family discussions and our family discourse. And it just seemed a long time um, to have been in denial like this. And of course, by by blocking out the day, we'd blocked out the boy, the person himself, my brother himself. He had ceased to exist. And I realised how little material there was around his life, that is, he seemed to have just disappeared. And I, I kind of made it a mission to recover the day as much as I could, both about what actually happened on that day and therefore what kind of boy he was, what kind of boy we had decided to delete from our lives. And of course, why we had done that. We'll come on to some of those themes in a bit more detail in a minute, but let's let's start with Nikki. Um, can you tell us? something about him. You're a family of four boys. You're number two. He's number three. What was Nicky like? Well, I remember very early in this process asking this question to my mum because I was a little bit ashamed of my memories, which I'll come to in a second. But I asked my mum, what was he like? And, and she said, oh, I always thought he was going to be a banker or a murderer. And I thought, well, that's a bit strange. Uh, and she said, you know, well, he wasn't very good at sport and uh, he wasn't very clever, not like you two, the two older boys. And she'd created this narrative. I'm sure we'll talk about this later on, about how people create stories about their lives, create <laughs> fictions, um, often just to survive. It was a terrible trauma for my for my parents as well. Um, but the fact was, once I started getting materials together and I got a school, I found his school reports not collected anywhere, just kind of scattered around the attic in different places. It turned out he was very good at sport and he was very clever. And there's no reason why he should have been a banker or, or, or a murderer. And in my own my own kind of relation to him, I remember us being great rivals um, because he was good at stuff and therefore he was catching me up the whole time. You know, he was good at cricket at nine, probably as good as I was when I was 11. So he, he, I didn't really like him very much. And I remember one instance of which I've, I've always carried in my mind with obviously we're not talking about him. So nobody else knew about this. Not that necessarily I would have told anyone anyway, but surely before this, where I just punched him in the face for no reason whatsoever. He came to my bedroom door and said, it's time to go. We were late for something. And I just completely in an unprovoked way punched him in the face. This anger and resentment was kind of building up. And I think this really complicated for me personally, the sort of various you know, issues around around his death, especially as it was just the two of us who, who were in the water when he when he died. Um, and so I had to sort of come to terms with that as well, is that that it's not a, it's not a story of you know, he was a cherished younger brother and we all loved him. And I in particular, he was my good buddy and, and, and I lost him. It was all a bit more complicated than that. I don't think that's the only reason we blocked it out. I think there was a lot to do with 
you know, Englishness and the idea that this was the best way to deal with a difficult situation and genuinely, sincerely, that this is the best way to deal with it. That was that was the feeling at the time, I think, and that my parents were, were doing their best by all of us by just moving on and moving on as quickly as possible. But there were complications like that about Nicky and Nicky comes out of the book as being, yes, different from his two older brothers. I think he's much less conformist. I think he's much more his own person. You know, which allows him to be my rival. He's not in any way cowed by me. He has friends at school, I discover in the documents, who are the people who no one else dared be friends with, like the headmaster's daughter. Um, and you know, there, there are quite a lot of details like that, which do bring out the idea of a boy who, who is trying to find his own way quite sort of differently from his older brothers, but he has all the same kind of attributes, really. He's very recognisable as my brother. Mm-hmm. And, and you re- referred to the fact that you you had to kind of piece together the information. It's almost like a sort of detective trail. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that process of, of kind of just going on that search? Um, well, so this, it was really divided between the, the private and the public. So in the private sense, I could, my, my father died in 2011. And then I think after a few years of sort of adjusting to that within our family, that's what allowed me psychologically to really approach this story. And, you know, finding out about it was first a question of, you know, interviewing, an odd idea to interview your own mother. But I mean, that's what I did. And she plays a large part in the book. And she does thaw generally, uh, gradually. And also it's clear that she really wants to talk about it. Once we get going, she really wants to talk about it. And we had never talked about it. And this was at last a a release for her. And therefore she did have details, some of which she had, uh, let's say, kind of honed over time, which I found out from... Other, other documents in particular weren't necessarily um, very close to the facts anymore. And other things which were really heartfelt and emotional and were clearly were true. You know, her story that she, she told about the first time she went to the butchers and she ordered five chops instead of six, this, this, was, this is a huge sort of emotional centre for her, just that, that story of standing in the butcher shop and feeling at, absolutely desolate because of this one number. But then I went around the house and my dad wasn't there. So I could rummage through his office and I found all sorts of documents. Um, I, there weren't a huge amount, but there were things connected to Nicky's death. And there were death certificates. There were letters that he'd written. I mean, there was a letter of complaint that he'd written to the Cornwall County Council, which I found quite moving. It was in his anger, he didn't know what to do afterwards. And so, you know, about a month afterwards, he sends a letter to the County Council telling him about safety on their beaches. Um, and, and with sort of that kind of documentary evidence, things started to come together. Um, and then in the attic, I found scattered bits and pieces, the school reports, photographs, um, letters, school books. Where there were newspapers which had the headlines of the time in of the drowning. And all this kind of brought the day back, back to life. Um, there was the undertaker's invoice which I found, again, it seems like a very dry document, but it was incredibly moving because one of the facts on it was the size of the coffin, which was really quite small. Um, And all these facts came together to to build a picture up of the day. And your mother refers to the being, everything's in a sort of neat red suitcase, isn't it? And she sort of says, oh, it's up there in the attic. And, And it's just not. And I thought it was very interesting. The whole thing feels a bit like a sort of crazy paving of people's memories and scraps of paper and kind of the visit to the Coast Guard and all of this. It's, it's, it's very hard to build a coherent picture, isn't it? Because things are sort of very uncertain and fluid and, and sort of scattered and you're sort of gathering it together in a way. Mm, the story of the suitcase was quite interesting because it wasn't there and these sort of bits and 
pieces of Nikki, which were in the attic, were all in sort of different places. Some were at the bottom of a, you know, a, a, a trunk which has linen in, and others were with some old toys. And it was just as if my mum wanted wanted to have this idea that she kept everything neatly, but actually had never been able to face the task of bringing things together. When I found his old school, this is before his prep school, so his very first school, his old blazer, for example, um, and a school cap. You know, these were, these were just kind of randomly around in the attic and as if it just would have taken too much emotional energy to actually at any time get it together but at the same time she didn't want to throw these things away um although when you look when I looked at what was left it was clear that you know a huge amount must have been thrown away and she must have gone through that heartbreaking process at some point of making piles of his stuff and and giving it away Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the strong themes, obviously, in the book is is repressed memory, both for you personally, but then collectively. Can you say a bit more about why you think your family took that approach? I mean, because nobody sat down and said, let's just pretend this never happened. But somehow you all colluded in and you as a child, obviously, you can only, you know, you're guided by your parents. Why do you think that was the way it was dealt with then? We all colluded in not talking about it together, but that means that each of us had a separate memory. And over this very long period, so the death took place in 1978, I started writing this book in the kind of early um, mid-2010s. In that time, each person had kind of evolved their own memory. I think what happens in relationships, you can see this most obviously in marriages, for example, is if you keep telling the same stories, you agree a story, and that's part of the the joy and the togetherness of of any relationship is agreeing the story that you've lived, even if it's not entirely accurate to the facts. But if no one's telling the story, you know, families of all five of us, all going off in different directions. So when I came to interview my brothers, they each had a different idea of what had happened. Now I know what happened because I was in the water with him. And that's part of telling the story is me sharing that story with with them. But they had completely different (coughs) ideas, for example, of Nikki being um, uh, uh, washed away by a freak wave. You know, there's a completely different story. It's not anywhere near that story. Or him going off on his own and leaving everybody and, and going for a swim and being essentially, you know, a naughty boy. That's not what happened either. But these, it's like any type of evolution. If you separate the strands, each strand can go off and evolve in a different direction and become something very different. And the reason I, that I realized this was a problem because I'd written a novel, the book before this, called Lazarus is Dead which is about the relationship between Lazarus and Jesus. So um, now as your readers will know, Lazarus is the only named friend of Jesus in the Bible. So it's about their friendship. And I invent a brother for Lazarus called Amos, and he drowns in Lake Galilee. And Jesus just stands, stands on the shore, this is a young man in his teens, and just lets this boy drown. And I actually described the drowning pretty much as I remembered the memory of Nikki drowning in the sea in Cornwall. And none of my family, I thought all my family would go, oh, God, isn't it terrible? You're, you're really writing about Nikki, obviously, because everyone knows this is what happened. And none of them commented on it at all, because for them, they had a completely different idea of what had happened. And that really made me realise nobody, nobody is sharing the same memories here. And this is constantly disrupting us as a family. This is keeping us apart. The fact that at this really important point in our past, we have no shared memory of it. And so the book was partly an attempt to to create that shared memory, talk to my brothers, talk to my mum, get everyone to really agree on a story. Um, and I hope I didn't bully anyone in that sense. That's certainly not the, the feedback I've had from them. But we do now have more of an agreed story on what happened and then what happened afterwards, which, of course, was was 
as shocking as what happened at the time in some ways. So it's interesting you said earlier that it was when partly after your father had died could you have could you have written this book and done this investigation while your father was still alive do you think would that have been too difficult? Well I don't think so because it's this the one major fact which came out which of course I'd forgotten like I'd forgotten everything else was that that the sort of two things came there are two big discoveries came out is that my dad had cancer at the time of this holiday so it was a longer holiday it was a three-week holiday uh, and we'd gone down he, he he was sort of in a state of mind where it was kind of his last holiday even though he would live for another 40 years but um uh, and, and it was all and he didn't go at the beginning so it's about whether my mum could look after the children without him there was all this kind of subtext going on but after Nikki died we went back to Swindon to where we lived um at the time had the funeral and then because the holiday was booked and because everything needed to go on as normal we then went back to finish the holiday which i found utterly shocking it does seem it, absolutely extraordinary doesn't it yeah and i think my parents must have been somehow deranged in order to to think this was the right thing to do and take us back to the same beach so that we wouldn't be frightened of water and of course yeah. ter- i mean i was terrified of water and was for years afterwards but did that level of attempted repression that level of denial to say no we carry on almost if nothing's happened straight after the funeral I think shows the depth of my father's you know attempt to, to repress this attempt to just be so stubborn and this didn't happen and uh, and and therefore while he was alive I think it would have been very very hard to reopen this story and um, one of the things that comes out is that you grew up in the church and attending Christian summer camps and I wonder what part, if any, faith played in coming to terms with Nikki's death. And was it, a, was it a help or was it a hindrance? Because some of the letters you quote, for example, the condolence letters, are heartbreaking. People sort of saying, you know, oh, it must be God's will or equivalent. And I just, you know, ex- extraordinary. But I'm wondering how, whether faith played a role with, in the way you process things. Yeah, so I'm glad you, you you noticed that some of the letters from the ordained ministers of, of God are, Just are shocking. They, they, even after forty years, they made me angry to say, "Well, yeah. you should be happy because because Nikki is you know by the right hand of the Father now," and really quite shocking. But the faith and the relationship with faith is there very closely <coughs> and directly in several ways. I mean, I think one is when when I wrote the book about Lazarus, I said, "Well, what is Jesus going to do while?" while Amos drowns in Lake Galilee. Um, and he clearly, you know, he has the power in the book to save him. But I realised, well, if he's going to, if, if walking on the water is going to be a miracle, it occurred to me as a sort of logical progression, then people have to have drowned in Lake Galilee before that in storms. Otherwise, walking on the water in a storm isn't a miracle. It's not a fantastic thing unless other people have drowned. So to a certain extent, all those people have drowned in the service of this miracle. Otherwise, it's not a miracle. And clearly there's a slightly kind of sour relationship to a biblical story um, there. And then then there was the fact that my parents did know a a vicar who came down afterwards and gave us a kind of a service around the table in the the house where we were staying before we went back to the funeral. And that was incredibly moving. And for the first time, so I was only 11, we all took communion together, even though I wasn't confirmed too too young at that time, but it was a very, it was a very moving occasion. It was very consoling. And so there were these two sides to it. And I think that kind of sums up my, my ongoing relationship with religion, as I sometimes find it incredibly frustrating, 
But at the same time, I'm very aware of the consolation which is available and the kind of sincerity of the belief of this minister who came down and gave children communion and tried to welcome us into a greater sense of sympathy with the way that the world and the universe works. And I, I, I remember that very fondly. That's interesting. Yes, I thought you described it beautifully, that service around that table. I was very much there with you. I could picture it. Um, you've touched on this already, but there's quite a lot of anger in the book. There are times when you're angry with your father for sort of not intervening. You're angry with the prep school system. You're angry with Nikki. And you're pretty harsh on yourself, I think. And I just wonder if the book, writing the book, helped resolve some of those difficult emotions. I, th I, th I mean, it's 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 any response to denial is going to bring out whatever emotions are or have been denied. Mm. And I think there, there is a certain amount of anger there in the sense that I wondered why I was having to do this, you know, 40 years later, is that we now have much greater awareness of how important it is to talk about things and, and we have the vocabulary to do it. And one of the things which came out of looking at 1978 is there simply isn't the vocabulary we have now. We don't have access to really much more healthy ways of, of dealing with these situations. So in a way, my anger is a little bit, misplaced because I want to have sympathy for, for my parents as well. I mean, when it goes comes to institutions, and I do write about the, the reaction at the school, which was essentially, we went back to boarding school one day later, my brother and I, my older brother and I, and the headmaster went around all the dormitories the night before, told everybody what had happened, said, if you want to cry, cry now. But when those boys come back tomorrow, you must act as if nothing has happened. You must just carry on as normal. And I think as an institutional response, again, I can understand why that happened. And I went to meet the headmaster for the book, you know, utterly well-meaning, good man, um, but acting on false principles. And I think that when it becomes, when it's institutional like that, and it's very hard for people to break the institutional grip of the habit of the way of doing things, that made me angry in retrospect. But that's a kind of anger which makes things change, I hope, in, in, the, in the longer run. And as for my dad, Yes, I think there were angers about his general lack of a kind of emotional input into the family, which come out in this particular story and what, how, he, how he dealt with Nikki. But they are some wider issues of anger, I think. So th that's probably a bit unfair. Right. I think it's entirely understandable in the context. Um, I mean, you know, you're angry your brother's died as well, aren't you? I mean, who wouldn't be? I'm, I'm wondering how the family, your surviving brothers and your mum, how they've responded to the book, how they felt about it, because it's quite, it's very exposing of the whole family, isn't it, in many ways? Yeah, they were very generous because I, I for the book, I speak to my two surviving brothers, I speak to my mum, they're very forthcoming, um, and they allowed themselves to be contradicted as well. Um, and when it was finished, I gave it to them and I, I said, you know, I don't want to know whether you agree with everything, I just want you to know whether you think anything is untrue. And I'd been, if something was untrue, I'd been prepared to, to change it, but I wasn't prepared to change anything which they just simply you know, disagreed with or had a, had a different opinion on. And so they all saw it beforehand, but again, were very generous and they, they felt that it was a, you know, a fair reclamation of the day. Uh, and I think as a family, we have become closer because of it. One of the problems is, is it, it's so ingrained, this idea of you know, moving on this with the stiff upper lip and the best thing to do is just to look ahead and get on with stuff and be cheerful. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to, you can't, you can't overcome that in, in, in one book, but it's certainly brought us closer and has allowed us to realise that actually we can talk about stuff which is difficult. And uh, I'm very glad that that's been the way 
it has. I think I should say my mum has really led that as well. And she's been happy to 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 accept and you know own her own her own sort of misconceptions about this day and her own um you know possible you know false roots afterwards of trying to get out of it and she she's been absolutely fantastic um and I think that's helped all of us I wonder if what you've learned writing the book has affected your own family relationships with your children at all has it changed anything I think because of this denial I I did I became interested in why are we this kind of family um, and that did go partly back to the schooling and the schooling that my father had had um, and therefore has changed my relationship with my family because I didn't want them to be taught the same kind of damaging principles and that did lead on to the writing of my next book Sad Little Men which is how you can institutionalize this repression uh, and how I don't think that's very healthy. Sorry to interrupt tell us a bit about that that new book uh, well, when I wrote The Day That We're Missing, people, the, 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 there's a little section about what happens at school and when we go back to school and how the school deals with it and how I deal with it when I go back to school. Readers were very interested in that. And I looked at it. And I thought, well, it is very interesting. And also, it's almost unbelievable. I mean, the way that these schools were run at that time. Um, and then it occurred to me that the people <coughs> running the country were at these schools at the same time as I was. And in fact, I started a boarding school in 1975, the same year as David Cameron and Boris Johnson. So when the lockdown came along, I thought, well, I really want to explore this because I recognize their type. I recognize their kind of emotional position on all sorts of issues because it's what we were trained to, to be like. Um, and therefore I went on to think in much more detail about, well, how do you get into a position where you can just wipe out a whole day, wipe out a person, decide that actually not being empathetic is the best way to go in a human situation? How do you get to that state? And that's what the next book is about. And I have to say, there's quite a lot of anger in that book, too. <laughs> Understandably. And I'm also interested to know, how do you choose between fiction and nonfiction? Because you've written both. Well, this, the, this episode of the, of the drowning, the, what actually happened, which I put in a novel in Lazarus is Dead, and it's almost word for word what, the same text as when I came to write it as what actually happened as nonfiction, as fact, in the day that went missing. But they, they fulfill very kind of different roles. I think I wanted to write a nonfiction book because I think, well, why am I hiding behind the fiction? And I think at some stage, all writers of fiction have to, have to ask this question is fiction just a hiding place for for the I essentially for for me and therefore you know you still write really involving and interesting stories but am I doing this to actually sort of escape from what I am as well as allowing the reader to escape and then I I found therefore writing non-fiction allowed me to be much more honest about myself and I felt it's more it's closer to life what I'm writing um, and since then I've only felt able to write non-fiction I've become very attached to that feeling of authenticity and directness um, and not hiding behind made-up stories and in fact you've asked me to 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 recommend a book but the book I want to recommend um, deals with this very very closely as well and I think I think it's an excellent book which deals with this question of you know what are our, what are the stories we tell about ourselves and do we learn more about ourselves and, and help other people understand life better by telling this fiction or as, as non-fiction? And there, there's a kind of border there, which very skillful writers can cross it and recross it and, and, and sort of play with that area. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting place for a lot of books at the moment. We'll come on to that in a minute, but um, tell us what you're writing next. What's the next book for you? 
So it is nonfiction. I'm still going with nonfiction, although there there is a small element of fiction because I, I never lose my joy in, in in fiction and there's a sort of admiration of what what fiction can do that actually nonfiction can't. So to speculate essentially, to to offer up stories which aren't true as a kind of speculation and a commentary on what we all know is true. So it's a it's 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 another memoir, but it deals with a much larger time period and it's trying to find patterns in a life, and it rests on the fact that those patterns depend on stories that we all tell about our past but also about fantasies we have for our future and we're always sort of stuck between those two places you know and how what kind of pattern does that make when you become old enough as i now am to look back and actually see yes i can see some patterns and i can see how the past and the future at each stage was making my life what it has become fascinating do you, do we have a title or a publication date yet uh, there's no publication date as yet, and the title is shifting around. Right, right. How interesting. Well, we'll look forward to that. So tell us about your recommendation, Richard. Um, I, we ask all our um, podcast conversation partners to recommend a book they think our readers will enjoy. What have you got for us? Well, I wanted to recommend a book called Crazy by Jane Fever, which, I mean, it, is it a novel? Is it, is it a non-fiction memoir? It's what it recently has been called an autofiction. It's presented as a novel, but it's clearly very true, very deeply felt, or a lot of it is true and very deeply felt. And it's about an, uh, a relationship that I'm going to say Jane Fever has as the writer. I mean, because that's how the book really convinces you this all really happened. And I think it did happen in Oxford in the 1980s. And there's a brilliant evocation of universities in the 1980s with a lot of the, the kind of casual uh, sexism, which is very well portrayed, and about a young, clever woman trying to make her way, and yet at the same time having these romantic ideas, which in some ways are an obstacle to, to her progress. Um, and she is a great romantic and she's studying English literature. And I think it's a fantastic book. It came out last year. Uh, crazy by Jane Fever and I don't think it had as much attention as it should have done um, and I would recommend it you know very strongly and it's about the stories we tell ourselves and how we can escape those or how we can use them to our advantage as well. That sounds absolutely fantastic thank you for that I will definitely look out for it. So we've been discussing The Day That Went Missing by Richard Beard which is published by Vintage and you can find out more and see some questions for discussion in the Church Times this month. So, Richard, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for your conversation and thank you for this really wonderful book, which I think is profoundly moving and powerful. And I've been recommending it to all my friends. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.